Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. My guest today is Karina Kilcoyne. Karina is an author and a former criminal justice attorney who faced profound trauma early in her life. Her mother tried to give her away at birth. And at age 12, Karina's father's incarceration left the family struggling. After her mother's death, when Karina was 24 years old, Karina adopted her nine-year-old brother and graduated from law school that same year. Karina shares that she carried around two decades worth of suppressed trauma for 10 plus years. And after decades of suffering, went on her own healing journey. In her book, Rise Above the Story, Karina shares her journey, guiding listeners to acknowledge, release, and rise above their limiting stories for emotional freedom and self-love. We're excited to have Karina with us today to discuss trauma, resilience, and her new book, Rise Above Your Story. Free yourself from past trauma and create the life you want. Karina, welcome to our show. Thank you, Graham. I'm so happy to be here. It's really nice to have you. You know, I really like the title of your book, Rise Above Your Story. And I'm really curious about what you've learned about the importance of one's story and what those stories hold for us. Stories is a very powerful concept for me and one that I have learned to evolve with and adapt to and now figure out a way to rise and change. So I want to first kind of just share with you like my idea of what I mean when I say story. And story is to me and what I write about in the book is your own emotional subconscious interpretation of your trauma, or maybe more specifically, it's like that negative loop that plays in your head, the chatter that tells you that you're unworthy, or who are you to do something, or why would you do this, or you, of course you can't accomplish that. And so it's that negative talk that we have in our head, and, and I have come to call that in my own healing journey, my story. And why that has become so powerful to me is because I've realized that those stories that I have been playing in my head over and over again for decades due to my childhood trauma were what was holding me back, what was holding me back from real joy and real happiness and deep connection with friends and romantic partners and holding me back from really following and running down my dreams. So when I really started to understand that it was this negative loop, this these stories I believed about myself, these false stories I believed about myself, I really wanted to understand more about how I could shift that. Mm-hmm. How have you learned about how we develop our stories and why we develop them the way that we do it? They're in the service of something important. Yes. Uh, or else we wouldn't develop them. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we develop these stories and why do we do so? So I'm a former criminal defense lawyer and did a lot of trial work. And I carried around with me lots of suppressed emotional angst and pain and trauma and these stories. And I carried that around with me for decades. And I also saw though in my own in my own work as a professional, my clients also carrying around these stories, right? So kind of like this revolving door of the criminal justice system and what my clients believed about themselves and what trauma they had experienced. But after 
decades of suppressing my own trauma, I decided that I was ready to change. And I wanted to go on a healing journey where I could finally find this deep sense of happiness and joy that I felt like I'd lacked for quite honestly, my whole life. Mm. And when I did that, I learned some important things about myself and about trauma and about stories. And the first thing I learned that was so powerful to me was that I wasn't alone in my trauma or my pain. In fact, the National Council for Mental Wellbeing says it's 70% of us will experience trauma in our lifetime. And that's an alarming statistic, first of all, but I also think that the number's probably higher because I'm sure that there are people out there that suppress their trauma and their pain and don't want to talk about it. But having this fundamental first understanding that I wasn't alone started to break me open, Graham. I really started to feel like there were other people out there too, feeling like I felt and suffering like I was. And that really felt, that really empowered me to continue on this journey. And then, but it was when I really started to learn and realize next, which was what the brain does in the face of trauma. Mm -hmm. So this is really what you were asking me about, which is this idea of why do we do this? Why do we create these stories? And, you know, they are subconscious. And what happens though is what your brain does in the presence of trauma is it tries to keep you safe. So in the, and in my book, I, I did take these kind of big brain science concepts and I distill them down into the simple concept of you have two parts to your brain, your emotional mm -hmm. brain and your thinking brain. Mm -hmm. And your emotional brain is what reacts when you face trauma. And when you have trauma, your brain wants to keep you safe. It's wired for survival, really mm -hmm. is what your brain is. And so it creates these stories that fill you with fear and hold you back because it doesn't want you to do again what you've done that resulted in you being hurt. So it creates this negative loop in your head that keeps you quote unquote safe, but actually what it ends up doing and what it did to me was these stories ended up causing me more pain because I was living this small limited life and I was not processing the emotions and the trauma I had experienced. And so this whole idea of stories and what I learned about them was really the fuel to what kept me on my healing journey. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that our stories are there for a reason and we de develop them also by, outside of our awareness. We, we develop them when we're very small. We don't have our brains fully developed at that point, and they're usually emotional. And what children do because we're egocentric the way that we are growing up is that those things around us that are happening must be because of who I am. And so their stories are usually about me and what these events around me really say about me. And that point you're raising that it, it's, it helps us to be protective of ourselves, to not maybe repeat something or try not to repeat something. And yet the, the irony and paradox of it is that we keep a very small, limited life and unknowingly kind of repeat patterns, hoping for a different ending on a very familiar beginning and do more of the same and experience that frustration, the lack of joy, the things you're suggesting there. But little do we know that they're driven by our stories that keep us small, keep us in our lane, but keep us very narrow. And there's a sadness to that because there's all this potential that's richly there, our inherent design, who we are intended and created to be, that doesn't get a chance to be tapped into because these stories are what we told ourselves. 
Tell us a little bit about and share with our listeners, if you would, Karina, your personal story. Yes. So I love where you left me with that, with the, you know, you're, you don't really tap into that authentic you and, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, you know, your point about, you know, your earliest childhood self and your brain is not totally formed and how important it is to understand what you go through at a young age and then what that means later on, as far as your brain formation and the stories you created because of it. So I grew up on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border in an old rusted out steel town. And I like to say I came from scrappy folks and everybody was hardworking and really had seen kind of the harder times of life. But in my own personal makeshift home, I was born to a mother who had mental health issues. She did not seek therapy, so I don't have a full diagnosis, but knowing what I know now about research I've done and and remembering things about her, she definitely suffered from depression, anxiety, panic. Mm -hmm. And my father went to the federal penitentiary when I was 12. And my mother was just unable really to process and handle the stress and the situation we were left in. And she quickly spent the money that my dad had left us. And I had three, two other siblings at the time. And we went without a lot. We went without food. We went without hot water. We went without electricity. And I grew up in a, in a sense of a deep sense of scarcity and formed these stories early on about abandonment and my unworthiness because of who my parents were and the situation that I was in with them. And I really switched roles with my mother. She was just unable to really take the reins mm -hmm. of the family. And so I did. And, you know, I was tasked with asking strangers for money and, you know, buying us food and making trips to the grocery store. Those situations and that routine abandonment that I experienced, I feel like, Graham, we were talking about, you know, your brain and what happens to your brain in those, in those young ages. And I feel like what happened to me was it kind of split me where emotionally, where I carried that for decades later, this story of me being this little girl who was unworthy of love. And I guess even a childhood at that time. But then there was this other part of me that was like this maven that was like hell bent on escape. Like I had to get out of there. Mm -hmm. And so I went to law school and shortly thereafter, just well, I just about when I was about to graduate, my mother died of cancer. And by then she had had my youngest brother and he was nine. I was 24 and I adopted him. And in doing so, I shifted or stayed in survival mode and did not deal with any of the trauma or the past pain or my stories because I felt like I had to survive and provide for us. And so those earliest stories of my life, those stories of feeling abandoned and worthless were stories that I carried on with me for decades. Tell me about that piece of it. You know, we're talking about trauma and there's different kinds of trauma, aren't there? Mm -hmm. There's there's what we maybe refer to as Shapiro refers to the big T traumas, you know, where the 9-11s happen and a car accident, an assault, the, the traumas that you cannot help but miss. Mm -hmm. And then there's a the little T traumas that 
are oftentimes relationship-based or situationally-based, circumstantially-based that, yeah, have some hardship in them, but we say, well, you know, sometimes that's just, you know, part of life or that's a, an unfortunate upbringing. However, little t traumas are just as impacting and they also get a story assigned to them as well. And we've got to make meaning of things. And so you're saying because of the abandonment, these other parts of your story began to be written here and it's our own personal story. How did, how did the unworthiness get a foothold in there for you? Mostly, I think because of my mother, the role reversal we had. Mm -hmm. And it felt to me, and I mentioned this earlier, it felt to me like, oh, I wasn't even worthy of a childhood. It felt like this gargantuan task and burden on me to do what I was doing and help my mother and take care of my brothers and sister. And it, it just, it started to feel like I lost sense of who I was. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't know who I was. I didn't have any authentic sense, sense of myself. I wasn't nurtured with unconditional love or my self-esteem or my confidence wasn't nurtured. So any amount of that that I might have gained, I had to learn to do it on my own. And what right. does a 10, 11, 12-year-old brain know? And so it became, it became apparent, quote unquote, to me at that young age that I was here to serve other people. And that evolved into this story of people-pleasing and everybody was, else was worth more than I was. And that's a story I carried around for a long time as well. But I definitely feel like, well, there were many circumstances, you know, that maybe added and contributed to that sense of unworthiness. It was deeply embedded with this sense of, I didn't have any right to care about my own feelings or my own happiness. I was right. there to serve and take care of other people. Yeah. It's interesting in that story, the way you put it right there, just hits it right on the spot. It's the stories that we we create uh, allow us something to control. I become this parentified child because I kind of much have to take the reins. And there's an identity and there's a strength and a control in that, something that I can have agency over while on the inside, my core needs are not being met. I'm not being seen. I'm not being parented. I'm not being attended to. So what do I do? I, I become really good at giving other people what I need. I start serving. I start being attentive to. I'm probably pretty good at reading the room and reading other people's needs. And something happens in that. They see me as good. That kind of that kind of counters my felt unworthiness, at least temporarily. And I also kind of secure a relationship. Maybe somebody can show up for me at some time if I can just be enough for them. And so this whole story has all these really elegant pieces to it can be dysfunctional in the long term, but there's these really important pieces to it, aren't there? What you just said there is so yummy. And I could just dive into that on so many points because that whole story of what I did, I could take that and think about like, like, like a Rolodex or like a flip flipping cards. Like I could yeah. see moments, memories in my life of me doing exactly what you're talking about. And even this deep desire I had to professionally succeed. Yeah. If you really look at it, 
it's it was the extrapolation of me taking that sense of agency and that sense of something I can control and that sense of something like, well, if I do this, if I check these boxes, I'm quote unquote good. And I kept seeking this external validation, thinking like, well, if I'm a lawyer, if I pass a bar exam, if I win a case, then I'm yeah. then I'm worthy of something. Absolutely. So I was looking for worth outside myself, which I think so many people do. And yet it's this idea of like, why why do I feel so empty if I have so much? Yeah. And it's because we're looking outside of ourselves instead of looking inside of ourselves. And if you don't know who you are and you haven't been given the opportunity to explore that, then this sense of unworthiness just continues and multiplies throughout your adult life. And the curious thing you're, you're raising here that I think is such a, a key piece, Karina, is that more times than not, this is an unconscious process. I mean, at the end of the day, it feels good. And I've heard, you know, multiple high-level athletes, you know, say, hey, we just won the Super Bowl and this and that. I went out and bought cars the next day. But the next day after that, I just felt like there was such a letdown. And they're at the pinnacle of or winning a case or, you know, those kinds of things we're talking about here. Believing that success is going to give us or holds the promise for you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning my ladder, you know, and, and I'm climbing the ladder only to realize that I've leaned it against the wrong wall. And I'm trying to fill something on the inside by working out things on the outside. Listeners, there's, there's a, Karina's got a great site and there's so many cool things she's got on there, a number of videos. And she's just very candid and very transparent around things. It's fun to watch. And Karina, in one of your videos, you, you talked about what you're saying right here, unknowingly working to achieve success to manage feelings of feeling worthless and, and and empty. But the shame of your story, you're saying, kept you from finding that real joy and meaning in life that you were trying to pursue as best you knew how. How have you come to understand how shame and kind of has that powerful hold on our identity and our inability to see and develop our true self? The role of shame. I like to say that to me, shame feels like the nectar of the devil himself. It is the most, it is one of the most deadly, insidious, mm -hmm. dangerous emotions you can feel because what it does is, is it keeps you locked up and it keeps you bound up and it keeps you quiet. And it makes you think, oh, I can't share these parts of myself with other people because they won't like me or they'll think less of me or they'll think I'm unworthy to be here with them and I can't share these parts of myself. Right. And for me, that played out in it, it, the ripple effect of, of trauma and the resulting shame I felt about it. I mean, it, the ripple effect of it, it was just in, in, immense in my personal life and my professional life. So just you know, to give some example, and my professional life, I, I carried on with all of this, of everything in my past secret. There were very few people into my adult life that I would share with what I had been through. And I thought that being this successful person would, you know, make me feel better and different and happier. And it would resolve all that. But all that ended up happening in addition to it not was that I also felt like an imposter. I felt like I was standing there living a life and in court and doing all these things. And I'm thinking, who am I? Like, yeah. I, I don't and even know really who I am. Knew, if they really knew, if they really knew, 
I wouldn't be standing here. This guy wouldn't have hired me. Like those kinds of thoughts, like the who am I to be standing here at the Court of Appeals arguing this what case? What a scary right? so, place that can be. Oh my. Right, right. And so no matter what you achieve and accomplish, shame leaves you in this loop of, I, I shouldn't be here anyway. I shouldn't be here because if people really knew, like, so you're waiting to be found out. And then, then this sense of in my personal life, that shame and these fears of, oh, wow, if people really knew, if this really happened, led me to choosing people based on fear yeah. or these lowered expectations of who I thought I was. So not wanting to be abandoned or being with somebody who didn't require much of me or didn't ask much of me or didn't nudge me or poke and say, hey, what, who are you in there? Share more of you with me. Right. So I would choose people, friends, lovers, spouses who who just were just kind of emotionally vacant or or didn't want to share of themselves. So it was it was sub subconsciously a way that I was I was strengthening my own story of unworthiness and shame because I was signing up for relationships that reinforced the idea of I had something to be ashamed of or unworthy of. So it's interesting how your brain will do that too. Mm -hmm. It will lead you to things, to choices, to reinforce the story or the shame or whatever it is you're telling yourself. You will make decisions subconsciously to reinforce that. We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Whether you're a longtime or first-time listener to Behavioral Health Today, you're probably familiar with Triad, the company that brings you this podcast. But you may not know that Triad also hosts a community for current and aspiring behavioral and mental health professionals, featuring trending content and education and career resources, all for free. If you are a behavioral or mental health professional, or you're studying to become one, join more than 80,000 people on Triad by claiming your free professional account today. Visit us at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com slash BHT and join the triad community today. It's such a good point. I'm, I, I, I love that nectar of the devil, shame. Oh. Shame, is, shame is who we are, you know, guilt is what we do. And so shame being, well, this is fundamentally who you are. And I, and I get the picture of him being in your ear saying, you know what, just stop. What are you doing? This is as good as you're going to get. Why even bother? Why try? And yet we try and rise above that story, believing that the story is actually true about who we are. But unknowingly as children, not having that frontal lobe that's about planning and reasoning and logic, the child interprets things emotionally, personalizes them, and makes it about who they believe they really are, that all of these things are happening. That gets pretty grounded and pretty deeply etched and furrowed in one's life. And gets carried all the way through into the imposter syndrome to, you know, strivings that we do and how powerful shame really can be. And it's, it, at some point, you feel like no matter what I do, this is my default. It's almost like a Sisyphean task. I'm trying to push that rock to the top of the hill. And no matter what I do, I'm only as good as my shame or my identity or my past. Mm -hmm. So that's such a good emphasis on that, Karina. Tell me, what what was it that was a catalyst for you to stop? you know, and take a look at your own journey uh, of healing and finding out your story. I had a, I had a couple start and stops 
you know, they kind of got me a little bit down the road, a little bit down the road. You know, I had a bad breakup in my thirties and it really forced me to kind of get into this mode of why did I choose that? Why did I mm. choose somebody with these characteristics? Why was I putting myself through this? So I went to some therapy then and got into yoga and, and I realized that at a certain point I thought, oh, I, I'm good. I feel good. Like I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm going to move on. Like quit seeing this therapist. I'm good to go. And looking back on it, I realized that it did, it did help me move the ball forward, but I really just processed that relationship, mm. right? I didn't dig in deeper into mm -hmm. the deeper questions of why I just processed why that person and I didn't work out. And so I, I really felt like there could have been a lot more done there, but I wasn't ready. And I think that that's an important point to bring up here for people to help them along the way is to understand that so often we go to therapy and we don't dig in to the hard stuff. We, we dance around that we all oh, this relationship or, oh, my boss is not nice or da, 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 I don't know why this keeps happening to me. And we dance around and we're surface level. Maybe we get down in like a foot or two, but we really don't get into the, to the pain. And that's, that's something that I really try to do in, in the book is, and, and people have told me this who have read it, is they say, wow, I did all these journal prompts and now I know what I want to talk to my therapist about. Like there were real childhood cool. stuff and things that I never talked about. But my, my, my real healing journey just took off for me and and opened up for me when my beloved dog Finn died. He was a golden retriever. He was the love of my life that I say that because he was my first real experience with unconditional love. He got cancer unexpectedly, incurable, like a really rare form of cancer when he was seven. And it just knocked my socks off. Like I had no idea. Like what? Like, I, you know, he had like upset stomach and all of a sudden it was this, you know, dreaded, terrible thing. And it, it really threw me for a loop. And as I was getting him treatment and, you know, doing our own, you know, therapies and remedies and me spending a lot of time with him as, as I was trying to fight the odds and make him survive, I caught on though that he was sick and dying 20 years, almost to the day of my mother's illness and her last days. Mm -hmm. And it really was bringing up for me a lot of old memories of her having cancer and me taking care of her and our unresolved relationship and how even when she died, I, she and I didn't resolve what we had had and you know how I still hadn't forgiven her. And a lot of memories I had not remembered for decades came back up. And when he died, when Finn died, I could not contain my grief. He was hmm. so much a part of my healing even before he died because of what he showed me and allowed me to be in the safe space with him and his unconditional love. And when he died, I could not contain it. And I grieved. And after a week, I caught on that it wasn't just about him. I was grieving all kinds of yeah. old memories and my childhood. And that was a big one to actually grieve my lost childhood. Mm. And when I, when I was having all of these emotions and memories surface, I knew it was time. It felt like it was finally time 
and and this this sweet dog actually I thought about it and I thought I want there to be something good that came from this from losing him and it really pushed me into this sense of like I can now finally do this it's safe and I'm safe and it's a good time and I feel so ready to be and find the real me and so I did and I started with traditional therapy and I Went here, there, and everywhere, trying everything I could to unearth all my old pain. And it 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 took me a while, but I I did it, and it was some of the best work I've ever done. I love the legacy that you're leaving for Finn here by honoring kind of what he was able to point you towards mm -hmm. and what he opened up for you and kind of what you connected around the timing of things, 20 years and the unconditional love peace and how we're deserving of that and how we get to experience it. And I, I'm, I've long been into animals and had a golden retriever myself and, and they're just phenomenal animals. But the idea of how we can experience that, you know, through that kind of an object that we don't oftentimes experience, you know, relationally and how that got you to be motivated into that. So you're talking about, you went into some therapy. I know you did uh, some hypnosis and just some age, age regression things you mentioned. And what was the role? You mentioned this earlier today, but I also was reading about it. What was the role of forgiveness for you, Karina, that is an important part of this growth and our story starting to be rewritten? Forgiveness was a tremendous uh, roadblock for me for a long time. But I also learned that it was crucial. Like I couldn't, I couldn't move on from anything until I was willing to forgive people in the past, my parents, especially, and myself. And there's a beautiful Nelson Mandela quote, and I actually put it in my book, and it's it's something, I'm sure I won't say it as elegantly as he did, but it was something effective. I realized that if I didn't forgive those who imprisoned me, if I did not find forgiveness for them, I would still be imprisoned. Absolutely. And it's and it's the truth. And it it just felt like for me, that was some of the the deepest unearthing I had to do. And it was a little easier for my father. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of disappointment and sadness around my relationship with my father, but it was immensely difficult for me to find it for my mother. And I think it's because mostly I saw her. You know, she didn't, you know, she didn't go to prison. So she, you know, she was, she was there with me in the house and, yeah. and she, she was supposed to be my protector and it, and it took me a long time to understand who she was. And it wasn't until I started doing this work and this healing work and understanding compassion mm -hmm. and where people came from and what mm -hmm. their stories are that I started to unravel this deep sense of anger and resentment I had towards her. And when I really started to dive into multi-generational transfer of trauma and understanding that that is a, a very big way that a lot of us get caught up in our story is in ways that we don't even fully consciously understand. Mm -hmm. So it took me that in understanding 
who my mother was and where she came from and who raised her in order for me to really get to a place where I could see her not as my mother who failed me, but as a person, as a human being in the world who was also abandoned. I, I so appreciate you bringing in the multi-generational piece, you know, without an awareness of that, we just live hand-me-down lives. What was just handed to me, I live out and that's, that's the, that's the way life is, right? That's, that's, that's my story. That's my understanding. That's, that's what I know. And we do what we know. And what you're raising here is that it's so hard sometimes though, and I appreciate you leaning into this piece, but if we can develop understanding, usually from understanding develops empathy. And from empathy, a lot of times we recognize the humanness in people and then we get to bring in some grace. And then from that, we find a way to forgive them for doing the best they could with what they had and unknowingly going through life with their story that they didn't even know that they were following the script on. And what was the part you said you had to forgive yourself? If, if you're comfortable with me asking that, what did you have to forgive in yourself? Going back to the shame concept that we discussed earlier, I had, I had over the years almost like splintered off pieces of me, me, me at different ages doing mm -hmm. things that I did to survive that I wasn't proud of or different, you know, circumstances that I lived mm -hmm. through without things or having to go to school without things. And there was so much blame that I put on myself, which in my healing journey, I learned that's also what we do, right? There's mm -hmm. this sense of well, it's your fault. And you mentioned this earlier, like when you don't have the thinking, reasoning, you know, thinking part of your brain online as a child, you know, you, you tend to see things that way. So for me, it was as an adult, finding that empathy and the compassion for those younger parts of me. So that took me almost as much work and effort as forgiving my mother because it's always been harder for me to forgive myself. I'm hard on myself. And that's something I work on still to this day, right? We have default mindsets. And so I, I, I require a lot of myself and, and I, and I had to learn how to stop being so hard on myself and go back and forgive myself for these different moments. And for me, I found doing that with compassion meditation. So envisioning myself at these different ages and what I yeah. did. And you, and you, and you said it so beautifully, which was, you know, even if you're talking about forgiving yourself, knowing that you did it, you did what you did a moment with the tools you had, that in and of itself, it was a game changer to really embed that in my, in my heart, in my brain about who I was and what I did. And I did what I did at that point to survive. Mm -hmm. And so getting through the shame of that and bringing those pieces back in, whether it was through, you know, meditation or writing letters to those younger versions of myself, telling them, you know, how brave they were and how yes. wonderful they were and how smart they were. And, you know, and, and, and how you did, you know, you survived and you, and you helped your brother and sister survive. And, and so in, in, in bringing all that in, I, I could tap into this self-awareness, this compassion, and this finally, this sense of self-love. Yeah. which I had never had. What a cool place to get to where you can say, hey, you know what? I'm proud of you. 
Look what you did. Look what you overcame. Oftentimes the hardest part of that is if we're going back and some therapists might frame it as kind of reparenting that child or embracing the child within, those are all good references. And using that as a little bit of a stepping stone here, one of the challenges sometimes around our our own forgiveness can be very early on, I learned, and, and you're 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 conveying this so very clearly, in order to survive and to do things I need to do, I need to shut off all those childlike experiences. I can't be that child. I can't feel like that child. I can't be like that child. I can't identify as that child. I got to be this mini adult, this parentified child, because my, my surroundings, my family, my mom need me to be this way and take on that identity. And so those areas that we typically cultivate emotionally never get developed or cultivated or even understood. And so here we are going back and we're saying, well, embrace that child. Sometimes that's scary because we, when we go back and do that, I've got to go back and feel what was cut off so many years ago that maybe for the very first time I'm tapping into myself. And those are overwhelming feelings sometimes of sadness or despair or fear or worry, you know, and they're hard. That, that, that's courageous. You know, this therapy stuff, that's not for the weak at heart. It is a courageous set of steps to lean into these things, particularly when we have to go back and feel things that we don't want to feel. And maybe even for the first time, not even feel them, but just identify what was I having to cut off? It's not always an easy process, isn't it? No, it's not. It, 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 and it really wasn't for me. And that's something that I really want to, people to understand too, because there's this idea that I had it my, myself that, oh, you know, you go to so much therapy, it's going to be fine, or this person is going to make me better, or this is going to happen, or I'm going to get in this relationship and, and this person's going to save me because they're going to love me enough. It's going to make everything okay. I've done that too. But I will tell you that that's not how it works. It is work and it is work that you do for yourself, on yourself, by yourself. A lot of the times is it's, it's wonderful to have a support system and, and, and everybody needs that, you know, friends and a therapist and all these things, of course, but that willingness and the vulnerability to go there to those dark places and talk about it and feel it again or feel it for the first time because you didn't feel it at, at first time when it happened to you in, in experience. It can be, I'll tell you, I, I would come back from some of those sessions exhausted, oh, yeah. exhausted, like as if I had worked, you know, a 10 hour day or had yeah. been on my feet during manual. It was like ex total exhaustion. And that that is good. That's a sign you are getting somewhere because mm -hmm. to feel your emotions in that way, it takes a lot. It takes a lot out of you, but that unearthing and, and, and bringing it up makes room for other things and it releases this angst and anger from your system. Yeah. And so after that exhaustion, I would sleep and eat and nourish myself. And I remember I would wake up and everything looked brighter. It would. It was like, it was like, oh my gosh, when like when did it all of a sudden become so crystal blue or so mm -hmm. so I'm a firm believer in that in doing the work and acknowledging and being honest about how hard the work is, but also the other side of it and how bright and crisp it can be and look and feel. When you put it that way, we get to realize that I'm gonna expend energy one way or another. I'm going to expend it to continue to do more of the same and 
let out my story or suppress certain things. And that's a ton of energy. And there's it's regressive. Nothing ever grows from that. Or we can take that energy that you're talking about and redirect it in a more progressive, growth-oriented way. And it's hard to look into these things. It's hard to look into the abyss at times. But you're right. If you stay there long enough, things surface and things become brighter. And there's hope in that. We can rewrite our stories. We can in fact, we can get in touch with our, what our real story was intended to be from day one. It just didn't have the authors at that time, and we were dependent upon them to write the story that was really truly about us, so that we could then embrace it and take it over ourselves when we reached our own independence. And that's part of what you do with your book. You help folks begin to take a look at their story and begin to rewrite some things. Give us in a nutshell what our readers will take a look at and learn from your book when they go out and purchase it right after this show. I wrote the book. I wrote Rise Above the Story because I wanted to give people a guidebook to healing. My journey went, I said, it went here, there, and everywhere. I went all over the place trying all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it. I really wanted to offer up to people this guidebook of understanding what is out there. And I think for so many people, this journey of healing can feel immensely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And that I wanted to take that sense of overwhelm away. And I wanted to at least create this roadmap where they could Mm -hmm. feel seen and heard and know that, that they are. And I want to remind them, like you are worthy of happiness and you deserve joy and love and especially your own love. So this is a guidebook. And what I do in this book is I, distill the brain science. I've, you know, I've read all the big heady books by all the, you know, the great intelligent people who write about the stuff, Gabor Mate, Bessel van der Kolk. I, I distill it. I have, you know, 78-ish references in the back. So there's more resources people could go to if they want to learn more, but I distill the brain science. I walk people through, I share my stories. I weave them through the book because I want people to understand that I'm willing to share my stories and unearth my shame. And I want to be, I want to inspire people to do that too. And then I give a formula, a a three-step formula that, that I've come up with based on what helped me. And, and there are, you know, three big ideas, which are the first one is acknowledging your story. So it's this, this development of self-awareness that you are actually telling yourself a false story right? And understanding and how to objectively identify what happened to you and what story you've been telling yourself because of what happened to you. Then I go into the idea of releasing the story. And this is a lot of what we've talked about, the forgiveness aspect. And how did you get so tangled up in your story in the first place? Was it, was it recurrent trauma? Was it multi-generational transfer? You know, what, what was the trauma, all these types of things and forgiveness of others and yourself. And then the third step is rising above. And and this is, you know, some of the the harder work and it's finding those silver linings and developing gratitude. You know, I mean, sitting here with you today and talking, if you would have asked me, you know, 10, 20 years ago, if I would be sitting here thankful for everything I went through, I would have said, what? Are you crazy? No. But now I can sit here and say, it wasn't great that I went through that, but look at what happened. Yeah. You know, I, I adopted my brother. I experienced motherhood. I, you know, I wouldn't be this strong, resilient person had I not gone through these things. I wouldn't have this deep sense of 
of clarity and self-love had I not gone through this journey. And then speaking of self-love, I really then go through what I did to finally find self-love. And I think that, you know, we talk about self-love, but it's, it's really difficult to, Mm -hmm. to, to find it and to have it and to nurture it, especially if you weren't ever given the tools in the first place to know how to do that. So I go through in the book, what, what I know about self-love and what I did to help me find self-love. And then all along the way, I offered journal prompts at the end of every chapter. So everything that we talk about in a chapter, I ask questions that might intrigue you and lead you down a path that you might be thinking, oh, well, I hadn't thought about it that way before. And I might now be open to talking about it like that. And so it really is meant to be a roadmap and we're on a journey and I want the reader to feel like I'm there with them. Yeah. taking them down the road and sharing where I have been and where I want to go and where I want them to go. Really good. I was working with somebody one time who said something similar. We wound down and she had a very, very traumatic history. As we were winding down and bringing therapy to a close and kind of looking to honor and respect all the work that we had done, I had I'd asked her about this in her history and what she went through. She said, you know what? I would not wish my history upon anybody ever. But for myself, I wouldn't change a thing. Much like what you're saying, because it's mm-hmm. who she became and what grew out of that for her that couldn't have been had it not been for those earlier ingredients and those things that she went through. What a powerful thing you both are saying and how we can look at it that way when we come out this other side and really feel that was worthwhile and the courage that it took to do it and the transcendent of opportunities that now emerge from this and the creativity and all the other things that it's really an emancipation process, really, where we're finding our truest self be freed up finally. You know, I would love as we close for today for our listeners to be able to follow up with you and find out more about you and also your book. How can they do so? You can find me on the web at www.riseabovethestory.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook at Karina Kilcoin. And on the website, there's a couple of great things about the book, some giveaways, some the introduction of the book is on there if you sign up. And I have a newsletter that I send out a couple of times a month with some video and always some good tips and tidbits on healing and self-love. Nice. Very good. And we're going to have that on our site as well, along with this podcast. So we look forward to allowing our listeners to follow up with that. Karina, it's been awesome to be with you today. Thank you so much for your your transparency, your, your level of vulnerability, and being able just to take us down to the depths that you went through that hold up a hope that anybody can go to these kinds of places for healing and the rewriting of their story. If they follow some of these things that you've modeled, that you've laid out in your book, and you kind of almost GPS them through in a way that kind of provides that kind of a framework. So thank you so much for what you put out there in your book. And also thank you for our time today. Thank you. This was a really meaningful conversation and I'm grateful for you. Thank you. I am as well. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for dropping by and joining Karina and me today. It's always great to have you with us as well. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other episodes can be found on our webpage at tryathq.com slash BHT. Thanks again for being with us on the show. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today. We appreciate all the support from our community. And if you like our show, one of the best ways you can support it is by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a review. Behavioral Health Today is a podcast part of the Tribe Network, all rights reserved.